Well, good morning to you all. It's good to see you this morning. It's good. Boy, it just feels good. It's a privilege to be standing in front of you again. And this morning we're looking at Psalm 10. And uh, one of the things that these psalms do, sorry, Jeff. Oh, hey, I need to apologize. We had the wrong hymn inlaid in uh, in the last hymn that we sang. That was my fault. That was nobody else's fault but mine. Okay, sorry for that. Uh, Jeff is gone for a week and I was supposed to proof it and uh, I dropped the ball. So my apologies to you all. Okay, Psalm 10. Um, one of the things that these psalms do is uh, uh, really, really helpful to us is, uh, and this is really common to wisdom literature, is they instruct us and guide us in what it could look like for God's people to interact with the world around us. It, 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 it lays out uh, helpful instructions for us as we interact with, uh, with our neighbors, as we interact with art or, or different forms of culture, as we interact, um, as we interact with each other, uh, as we interact with our city, the Psalms can, can provide helpful instructions for us of what that could look like. Uh, and if you remember Psalm 9 last week, Matt preached on Psalm 9, that was, that was uh, seeking to answer the question for God's people about what it would look like as they endure oppression from surrounding entities. So that'd be the Israelites and, and uh, foreign nations oppressing them was the image that, that was given to us in that psalm. This psalm, Psalm 10, uh, is a little, little closer to home for us because it talks to, to us about what it should look like for God's people to interact with oppression that's in their midst. Like, instead of oppression from from outside, oppression from within, or injustice or wickedness, as the psalm describes it, from within. And that's a really prescient uh, question for us to ask these days, isn't it? Like article after article over the course of years, incredible allegations and fallen pastors and conversation about toxic church cultures and all of that begs us to ask the question, what is our responsibility as members of, of God's community to deal with the wickedness that might, might even be in our midst? What does that look like for us? And that's the question that we're asking this morning is, is, is what is this psalm calling us to? And I would say as a, as a kind of a minimum, what is this psalm calling us to as we engage with each other? All right, let's look together. Psalm chapter 10, this is verses 1 through 18. Hear the word of the Lord. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul. And the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression, and under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages, in hiding places he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. 
He lurks in ambush like a lion in a thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws them into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Father, this is, this is a difficult read, and so I ask that you would simply help us, help us to, to lean into this text, help me, your servant, to serve these people lovingly and well and humbly. I pray that everything I might say would honor you and be in accord with what you're trying to teach us through this passage. Guide us during this time, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so several years ago... Uh, I think it was six, maybe six years ago, seven years ago, our family uh, was moving into the Nashville area. So we were going to Franklin, Tennessee, just south of Nashville. And, and in our marriage, that was the first time that Shonda and I were actually picking out a living space together, which is a whole interesting challenge, right? And uh, and it's funny to look back on it now, but uh, but the housing market there is very similar to what we're seeing here. I mean, it was just very hot and houses were kind of flying off the market. And so when we had an offer on a house accepted, I can't tell you how excited we were. I mean, we moved into that house with so much joy, a little bit of relief, but there was hope. I mean, there was just a tremendous amount of hope when we moved into that house. And then things started happening. Things started breaking, you know, like things that somehow escape the home inspectors and, you know, inspection report and that you now have to have to deal with. Shonda and I were trying to remember uh, all the things that were happening earlier, earlier this week. And it was just crazy. It was like all of a sudden appliances just stopped working like they quit. The garbage disposal and the oven quit on the same day. It was just uh, crazy. The, we would reach out, um, we would reach out for doors and door handles were just kind of coming off in our hands. We we're like, what's going on? And then I remember the, I remember one time we were sitting down at dinner and all of a sudden water just started dripping out of the ceiling onto the dining room table while we were trying to eat. But the scene that sticks out the most to me, um, and this just showed us I think just how much we were getting overwhelmed and frustrated with all these things that were breaking. And, uh, and even if we had enough money to kind of just stay in the house and keep, you know, kind of keep it, keep it together. Uh, we were stand, I was standing at the front door first thing in the morning. I'm about to leave to go to the office. 
And Shonda and I are talking to each other again about something that's broken because the AC stopped working. I mean, like of all the things. Uh, The AC is not working. It's probably going to cost us a lot of money. And we're just getting frustrated and afraid that we might have bought a lemon and we're overwhelmed. And then all of a sudden, one of our sons, who was just very small at the time, just walks into a room with one of those thin decorative rods that's supposed to be holding up a banister. You know, they're called newels. He just, like, it had come off, and he was just walking into the room. And so, like, so frustrated, I turned to leave, and I reached out to the front door, and what happens? The door handle just comes off in my hand. You know, you know that moment in It's a Wonderful Life where George Bailey picks the knob up off the banister, it just kind of comes off, and it, like, it tips him over the edge? That was my George Bailey moment. And so I'm standing there, and I'm mad, and I'm holding, I got this door handle in my hand, and I'm overwhelmed with all the needs that are surrounding me, And you know what I wanted to do? I wanted to just lay the door handle down and walk out that front door and just drive away for a while. And that's the temptation, isn't it? That's the temptation when we're surrounded by needs. When the number of needs that we see that are around us seem to outpace our own ability to to attend to them, When there are more needs than we can fix, and we don't even know where to start, then the temptation is to not do any, to disengage. And there can be all kinds of reasons for that. I mean, we could lack wisdom. We might not have the ability. We might be overwhelmed. But when we're surrounded by needs, often the temptation for us is to disengage. And one of the beautiful things about this psalm, as hard as the psalm is to read, one of the beautiful things about this psalm is that it just gives us a sense of the beginning of what it might look like for God's people to attend to the needs that surround them. And what I see in this passage is, is it's really simple. I see that the psalmist, he, he sees some things and he advocates for some things. He sees some things and he advocates for some things. And that's what I'm going to talk about this morning is what do we see and what do we advocate for, okay? So it begins with seeing. The first thing that he sees is wickedness. And it's described to us. Wickedness is described to us in this passage in in terrible detail, isn't it? But how does he describe the wicked people? Well, he starts by, by helping us see that in wickedness they're arrogant, Do you see that? They're characterized by their arrogance. Verse 2 says, in arrogance they hotly pursue the poor. In verse 3, they boast of the desires of the soul. They are bragging about the things that they want and that they are going to go get. Uh, Verse 4 says, in the pride of his face, the wicked do not see God. And that's an interesting connection that the, that the psalmist makes, that in, in their arrogance, they think so much of themselves that it, that it skews completely their understanding of who God is. And in this passage, it looks like it leads to a sort of blasphemy. Did you see that? It says, verse 3, they curse and renounce the Lord. Verse 4, all his thoughts are, there is no God. Verse 5 says, God's judgment are on high and out of his sight. This means that to them, either there is no God, that this person, the wicked seem confused about this. Either there is no God, 
um, or to judge their actions, or they believe that they're simply beyond the reach of God's judgment. And what we see here is that the wicked in this instance has sim- simply has no fear of the Lord. Like the Bible teaches us that the fear of the Lord is like the basic building block for wisdom, for wise living in the world. Like someone who has the fear of the has fear of the Lord has an innate in innate reverence for God's moral ordering of the world and is growing into the ability to live within the grain of the way God has created it. And this person has no regard for that. They have no fear of the Lord because simply they think that they are as powerful as the Lord. Verse 11, he says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see these things that, they, that, that I am doing. In fact, he only has disdain for God and thinks God is exceedingly limited in the reach of his power. And these views about who God is, it's almost like it gives permission for what I see in this text as predatory behavior. Do you see the way the psalmist describes what this wicked person or people are up to? He uses predatory language. Look at verse 8. He sits in ambush in the villages. In ambush. Verse 9. He lurks in ambush like a lion. The psalmist is using predatory language to describe the actions of the wicked against the weak. And probably, you know, one of the one of the things that we see throughout the Psalms, it appears that this wickedness pays. It says his ways prosper at all times, is what the Psalm says. And it's interesting to me that all of this seems to use relational language to describe the wicked. How does the wicked relate to themselves? Well, they're arrogant. How does the wicked relate to God? Well, they think they're equal to God or that God doesn't exist. And how does the wicked relate to other people? Well, in a predatory fashion. And, what, and, and so that's what he sees when he looks at it. And he's exceedingly grieved by what he's bearing witness to. Now, how does he see the victims? How does he see the effects of this wickedness. Well, it, it, when we look at the targets of this wickedness, we see in what I would call injustice in just about any way you can define it, possibly abuse. And look at the adjectives that are used. This is so sad. It says that, Psalmist says that they're innocent, that they're poor, that they're helpless, and the result is that they become crushed. These are innocent people. They've done nothing to earn this. They're, without, they're poor. They're without means to defend themselves. They're, they're helpless. And they're crushed. It's like they can't do anything to stop what's happening to them. That's, what, that's what's being described here in this passage. There's this irrepressible force of wickedness being acted out against, uh, against these victims. I know I've said it a couple times, but that's rough, isn't it? Like when you really, when you really look at this, and what would it mean to us to understand that this psalm is in the hymn book of God's people? Like, can you imagine the congregation of God's people singing this? I mean, two thirds of this psalm is just simply bearing witness 
to things that they're seeing. And these things are hard to see. But here's the thing. They are looking at it. They, the congregation of God's people are doing the hard work of cultivating eyes to see the wickedness in their town, in their neighborhoods, in each other. And why is that? It sounds simple, but why is that so important? Well, because, you know, one of the things is that seeing protects. The ability to see and call attention to can protect. And we bring it into the light. So that wickedness like injustice and abuse and predatory behaviors like you see in this passage can't find a foothold within the community of God's people. Many of you know that I used to... uh, I used to work with teenagers and children, okay? That was my ministry, pastoral ministry life for so many years before I came to Red Mountain. And, uh, and when, you're, when you're seeking to shepherd ministry communities of children and teenagers, protecting, your ch- protecting the weak and the helpless among you is like the priority, okay? It's one of the most important things you can do. And uh, I was on the phone, I remember this clearly, I was on the phone with a friend of mine, and his work is to consult with churches to help them, uh, to help them accomplish just that. He goes in and he helps churches and their next generation ministries kind of protect their, their ministry communities. And you know what he said to me? He said, the most important thing you can do to serve your, st- to serve your families is to train your staff and your volunteers to spot certain things. He said, you can, you can have the, mo- the best policies in the world, but if nobody knows what they're looking at, then you'll be vulnerable. What was he telling me? He was telling me that, that you have to have eyes to see if you're looking to protect the weak or the helpless or the poor or the infirm in your midst. That is, that is a, just a part of caring about them, is that you have eyes to see these things. But the other reason seeing is so important is, is simply because it invites or precipitates a responsibility, doesn't it? Like, have you ever... <laughs> I love this because I used to work in restaurants. And uh, have you ever noticed, like, restaurants at peak... You ever been in a restaurant at peak busy time, okay? And have you ever noticed how experienced wait staff will be exceeding... Like, they'll be really, really disciplined with where they look, you know? Like they walk around, they, 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 will, they will walk around and they will be very disciplined with their eyesight. They have selective seeing, okay? So why is that? Because, because they know, they, these are people that are surrounded by needs, right? Everybody needs something from them. And they know that once they lock eyes with you, they have to, they have to do whatever you need them to do. And so one of the ways they kind of protect themselves during times of real busyness, when they're just consumed with things to do, they, uh, they, they, they're selective in, in the things that they see. It's, it's, how they, uh, it's how they kind of manage their task load. It's how they uh, avoid making promises, false promises. And I think sometimes one of the dangers for us is that we could just be too busy. Or we could be too consumed with other things that we have to do. We could be too afraid of what, if we're seeing something, we could be too afraid of bringing it into the light because maybe we could be wrong or, or this person's really important. And one of our prayers simply needs to be this, Lord, just give us eyes that see so that, so that we can protect, so that, so that we can exercise responsibility, help us to see what's around us. And there may be times, 
There may be times when God is asking you to enter into a difficult situation for the sake of somebody who can't help themselves. That requires wisdom, probably counsel to think through, but our Christian heritage is littered with people who courageously and often sacrificially took up a cause like that. And so, Lord, give us eyes to see. And that may be you. I've got to ask the question, is it possible that you know someone who is weak and helpless today and could use your help? Is it possible that God is calling you to do something on their behalf? At the very least, it's a question we should be asking. How do I attend to the things that I see? And where does the psalm go next? What's the next thing about this psalm? Well, the psalm begins to advocate for the helpless and the poor before the Father in really wonderful ways. The psalmist begins to ask, advocate for a champion. Look at verse, verse 12. It says, lift up your hand. Arise, O Lord, and lift up your hand. That's the image of a warrior raising his hand in battle. Look at verse 15. It says, break the arm of the wicked. So God, raise your hand, but break their arm. What it means to break their arm is to rob them of the power that they are using against other people. And so they're advocate, this person is advocating for the Lord to fight on behalf of the helpless and the weak. Lord, please help them. Be their champion. And would you please, Father, prove the wicked wrong about the things they're saying about you? Prove them wrong is at the heart of the psalm. Would you please prove them wrong? They are acting like you are, that like they are immune to your sovereign dominion in the world. Father, oh Father, would you please prove them wrong? They're deeply mistaken about these things. These people are claiming that you don't see what they're up to. Would you please prove them wrong? Remind them who you are. Verse 13, you see the, the, the mischief and the vexation. Verse 17, you hear the desires of the afflicted. Notice how the psalmist is deeply convinced about the character of who God is and is asking, God, please don't allow them to continue in their deep misunderstanding of who you are. Prove them wrong. They claim that you don't care. Would you please prove them wrong and show them just how much you do care? Verse 14, you have been the helper of the fatherless. And finally, they're asking for strength to endure while they wait for God to act. And this is a hard truth. Look at verse 17, strengthen their heart. There's a prayer to give them strength and and courage while they endure deep suffering. And the hard truth is that sometimes justice comes swiftly and sometimes it doesn't. And it's not ours to always know why and how, where, and when God brings justice to bear on every situation. We don't always understand that. William Wilberforce labored for 44 years trying to get slavery abolished in England. And he learned three days before his death that, uh, that the Slavery Abolition Act was about to pass. God's timing is not our timing. And I don't know if the psalm, psalmist ever saw any resolution to, to, to this prayer that he was asking. But he's advocating for something. This is incredibly important. 
This is incredibly important because what we see in the, in the, the, the arc of this text is that it begins with seeing wickedness and expressing anguish, and then it moves to advocating, and, and, and there uh, it finds a renewed confidence in who God is, the very character of who God is. Seeing and advocating. This is really just the beginning. This is just, this is just the beginning of what God's people uh, can do. And it occurs to me, listen, we could do this. Like, is there any reason we can't pray prayers like this? Like, we can see and we can advocate. We can see and we can... Think about this. Um, We got community groups that are starting in just a few weeks. Like, what would it look like? Hey, all of you should sign up for a community group, okay? And if you're wondering, you know, who's, just sign up for a random one or join mine. We'd love to have you. But, But listen, what would it look like if your community group just spent a few minutes together, circled up, praying over the things you might be seeing? And if you're not seeing anything, maybe the prayer needs to be, Lord, give me eyes to see. But we can pray over that. We can join together and advocate before the Lord for the sake of of those who need him. Um, You know, we have an awesome prayer team. I don't know if you know this. Our prayer team is awesome. And they meet on Sunday mornings before the worship service. And they're communicating with each other through the week. And they're praying over things. And one of the things that they pray for is the city of Birmingham. Listen, they'll give you things to pray for. (laughs) And they would love to have you. Now, why is this so important? Well, it's so important because, listen, if you're the one who is weak and helpless and suffering... Now, what do you want most in the world? You want to be seen. And you want somebody to fight for you. And what would it look like as God's people to take up, to, to, to bear witness to who God is by being those who see and who fight? But as well, and let me just say this, seeing and advocating is deep at the heart of who Jesus is. Because listen, Jesus is someone who saw people. And those are some of the most wonderful stories of who Jesus is. It's just where we see him see somebody that other people probably didn't. It's amazing. He sees a man with a withered hand. Somebody who couldn't have a vocation. Somebody who was begging that other people probably stepped past and couldn't look at them. He, he sees a woman that the townspeople viewed as suspicious. And what did he do? He went, he went up and just started talking to her. And they met Jesus. He saw people other people learned not to see. And then you have Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is a, is a fascinating story. Zacchaeus is amazing. Zacchaeus was the chief tax collector, which probably meant that he was the chief perpetuator of financial injustice in their town. Okay, he was somebody you avoided. You didn't want to meet Zacchaeus. You didn't want to lock eyes with him because he's probably about to take something from you. Okay, and as the story goes, Zacchaeus climbs up in a tree because he's short and he wants to see Jesus over the crowds. And what does Jesus do? It's beautiful. Jesus, Jesus walks under the tree, and the text says he looked up at Zacchaeus and began talking to him. He saw Zacchaeus, and let me tell you, when Jesus saw Zacchaeus. He saw everything. He saw who he was. He saw the wickedness he had committed. He saw the wickedness in his heart. And later that day, when Zacchaeus got to know who Jesus was, everything changed for him. And he gave everything back, times four. 
But Jesus sees people. And if you know Jesus this morning, I want you to understand it's because he saw you too. See, he, he looked at you. And he, he, when he looked at you, he saw everything. He saw what needs healing. He saw, he saw the wickedness in all of our hearts. And he gave of himself and fought for us at the cost of his own blood. And you know what we see? As those who know Jesus, that we now have an advocate. First John chapter 2 says this, uh, In Jesus we have an advocate with the Father, a great high priest, who is interceding for you right now. One of my favorite stories is, about, is, uh, is when Jesus says uh, to one of his disciples, he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. And so look, the, the, reason, the reason that we can bring this kind of goodness that the psalm lays out to bear is only because this kind of work has already been done for us. That it's a picture for it's a picture for us of just how deeply we have been loved because Jesus saw us, and as those in faith, He is advocating for us right now, and we have the opportunity to bear witness to who Jesus is everywhere we go or anywhere we go, just by looking for opportunities to see and to advocate. Amen. Amen. Let me pray. Oh, Jesus, you are, you are the one our whole lives depend on. And so we pray that you would make us the faithful community that you call us to. And that you would help us to lean into with great joy and with no small courage the paths that you've called us toward. And would you give us opportunities to love as you love? Would you help us to love as you call us to? And I pray that you would convince us over and over again of the story of your love for us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.